You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. This is Hunter Keegan, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us today because I had a great interview with an author named James Edgar Skye. James is such an interesting dude, and the way that he speaks about himself is just so down-to-earth and honest that it really makes for an interesting conversation. I had been featured on James's own podcast a couple of weeks ago, so... In turn, I invited him on to Bipolar Recorder so he would have a chance to actually talk about himself for a change. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, but there is a very important note that I wanted to make up front, which is that this episode contains some really intense conversation about suicide and also a couple of brief mentions of child sexual abuse. So if those are topics that make you uncomfortable, you may want to skip this episode. But for anyone else who's still on board, sit back relax, and listen to James's story. All right, good afternoon. We are back with another episode of Bipolar Recorder. Today, I am joined by James Edgar Skye, who is an author And I'm really excited to have him on the show. He has his own podcast as well called the Bipolar Writer Podcast. And I was featured on that a couple of weeks ago. So I invited James to come on here. Uh, James, I just wanted to pass it over to you for a second. If you want to introduce yourself, maybe tell the audience about your diagnosis and how that came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to say first, thank you, Hunter, for allowing me onto your show. I'd love to be able to share my story. As Hunter said, my name is James Edgar Sky. I'm an author, mental advocate, writer. Um, I have my own ghostwriting business. And um, in 2007, I was diagnosed with bipolar one with psychotic features. Actually, my original diagnosis actually was schizoaffective disorder because I was kind of in a really bad place at the time. And psychosis was a major part of the reason why I had that diagnosis. About two months after that, it was changed to bipolar one, you know, with psychosis. Hmm. And over the years, it's increased to, um, I have social anxiety and also panic disorder. I also deal with insomnia as well. Wow. What made that change from schizoaffective to bipolar type one? Was there a symptom that they noticed that made the uh, distinction for them? Yeah, when I went into the hospital, um, I tried in 2007 to take my life. Um, It was a suicide attempt. I happened to survive, luckily, knock on wood. But um, I went in there and I was talking about listening to the voices and all that stuff. And they basically gave me the schizoaffective disorder um, right away, uh, just like a general diagnosis. And then as I was in the hospital, and, you know, they got me on medications, they stabilized me, they changed it over to 
to it could be bipolar. Um, it wasn't until I got out. Um, I actually went in to, again, for a suicide attempt about a month later. So this was um, Thanksgiving of 2007. And then again, about New Year's, I was back in the psychiatric ward. Um, it was then that I actually first got my first real psychiatrist. And he decided that schizoaffective disorder was too much of a, a stretch. And I was showing more symptoms of bipolar with psychosis. And um, once they got me on the antipsychotics right away, um, it, the voice kind of went away. And so they decided to change it to bipolar one with psychosis. Wow. That, that's amazing. How old were you at the time? I was 22 years old. Wow. Um, I had been dealing with mental health issues probably since I was maybe a preteen. Um, I had a really bad experience when I was about four or five years old. Mm. Um, I was sexually abused by someone that was close to my family. And it didn't really hit me until I was older, but um, a lot of things happened when I was in my early 20s that really led to my diagnosis, my committing suicide. I was in a serious relationship and that ended pretty abruptly. Um, it kind of compounded. I quit my job. I was floundering for about from about 2006 to about the, the day that I decided to take my life. I was in constant pain, depression, and it was a, a fight. No matter what day it was, I was struggling with very, very deep depression at the time. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's some heavy stuff, but um, I really appreciate you being so transparent about that. That's really powerful. And you said that there had been an abrupt end to a relationship that you had that was kind of leading up to this suicide attempt. Do you think that that impacted the, um, or I'm sorry, how do you think that your mental health impacted, if at all, the end of that relationship? Did that have anything to do with it? Yeah, it was kind of like the, it was like uh, building up that, you know, when you built up the Jenga blocks, you know, things were getting pulled out from about the time I was maybe 14 to 22. And it just, things just kept getting pulled out, you know, memories were coming up, repressed memories that had, that had tried to repress um, things that had gotten, you know, bad throughout my life and this was like the one good thing in my life at that time mm -hmm. and when that came crashing down I just it just seemed to like the whole the whole entire tower just kind of collapsed and I just my mental health took a really really deep probably a, one of the worst rock bottoms of my life and I've had a few but that was one of the worst ones because I didn't understand it like I do now so it it affected my mental health immensely. I mean, it was, it was bad. I thought about suicide almost daily and I was barely functioning, barely getting out of bed. Nobody really understood what was going on. And even especially myself, I had no idea what was going on. And, you know, coming from uh, an Asian American background, we didn't really talk about mental health. And so, you know, my mental health knowledge came from, a class I took in high school. 
And, you know, I thought there was something wrong with me, sure, plenty of times, but I never wanted to admit it, even after my diagnosis. I couldn't admit that there was something wrong with me for years. So, yeah, it did definitely affect my mental health at that time. Wow. And you said that you had been hospitalized twice um, around Thanksgiving of 2007, and then again around the new year, just a few weeks later. Have you had any other hospitalizations since then? Yeah. Um, I haven't been in the psychiatric ward since 2008, um, but I have been hospitalized. Um, my last suicide attempt was in 2010. Um, that was the worst one. I ended up in a coma for about, I think, three or four days. Wow. Um, they didn't think I was going to come out of it. Honestly, they the doctors pretty much told my mom that I wasn't going to come out of it. Um, I had overdosed on an extremely um, large amount of medications, and I mixed it with alcohol, and it was um, it was mostly antipsychotics and anti-anxiety medication mixed in with alcohol. And um, it was probably out of the three times I was hospitalized, it was probably the, the only time that I actually truly did not want to be a part of this world. Mm -hmm. um, the other times might have been, I consider them more of like, I just wanted to be heard because I was just in so much pain. But something happened in that last one that uh, we don't have to necessarily talk about it at this point, but something came over me um, and I've written about it. It's, it's a strange thing when you finally decide that, you know, you've had enough of life. You almost lose the pain forever. It's like, it's gone. It's no longer there. And that is a very interesting thing because that can be replicated without, you know, attempting suicide. I found out over the years, but I always go back to that moment of that sense of peace as really the turning point in my life, especially when I woke back up. Um, something that happened after that was really what changed my whole philosophy on life. Um, after I was, I was in the hospital for about a week and a half, um, I got out, it was maybe two days later, I ended up having really bad um, seizures. Mm -hmm. um, I had, I was, I just happened to be feeling bad it was, I think, a Saturday, maybe. Um, I had gotten home sometime during the week, toward the end of the week. And I was sitting at my computer watching a movie, and I just, I'd been feeling bad all day. And so my parents, of course, because I just tried to commit suicide, again, they were watching me pretty closely. And I remember sitting at my computer watching a movie, and all of a sudden, I wake up and I'm on the ground, and there's there's the fire department all around me, people around me. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And they're like, you just had a seizure. It was really bad. It lasted for like at least five minutes, maybe more. And, um, you know, on the way to the hospital, I had another seizure. And then for the next 24 hours, I was having seizures um, throughout the day. And it was probably the scariest thing I've ever been through, considering that I've tried to take my life. That was more scary than anything I've been through with trying to take my life and suicide and all that. Um, yeah, that was just, it changed my whole philosophy when I woke up. And, you know, after they ran all the tests, they never really figured out what it was, but they believe it was like a delayed reaction because there was so much medication in my system. Um, something happened, maybe something in my brain, 
you know, they never, I mean, I did every test in the book that they do when you had seizures. And um, they, that what, what happened after that is like, I couldn't drive for a year. I had to like take tests like all the time. And it was just really an eye opener of what you can do to damage yourself. Wow. You know, when you survive a suicide attempt, it's the closest I've ever come to actually leaving this world was that last suicide attempt in 2010. Interesting. So what do you, I, I know this is like such a general question, but like, what do you say to people who may be in a state of mind similar to where you were back in those days? Like, do you have anything that you would tell someone who is suicidal or having suicidal ideation just from that kind of hardcore personal experience that you've directly had? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, For the most part, I do tell people that, you know, suicide isn't always the answer. There are other options. Um, I have this newer philosophy on, on suicide. It's a little controversial, but it, there's a lot of truth behind it. And when I when I talk to people from this point of view, they really change the way that they think about it, you know? So what I've been telling people within the last like maybe two, three years is that, you know, yes, you know, especially those that, you know, are not suicidal. Suicide is a choice that we make. And when you look at it like that, that might sound, sound controversial to some people. And I understand that but it is a choice that the person has to make. And if, if somebody reaches out to you, they don't want you to change their mind. They want you to listen. And that's what something that I've, I've noticed that is the difference between people actually having suicidal thoughts and actually following through. And I met with plenty of people that have been wanting to follow through. And it's just, giving people a space to listen, not trying to tell them that it's, you know, that things are going to get better right away because they don't, unfortunately, when you're that bad, they don't, they don't want to hear that's going to get better. They just, a lot of times they just want to listen. They want somebody mm-hmm. to listen. Um, the other part of it is if somebody does commit suicide, yes, it's very sad. And I understand that. And yeah, it, unfortunately the burden comes on the family and the the friends of that person but don't judge them too harshly because I've been on both sides of comforting somebody who was suicidal and not so a lot of times I'll tell people my story that you know I almost died and it took me almost dying to change it but that doesn't mean that you have to go through that exactly to change you can make a choice. That's what the whole thing about the idea of choices that we make in life. So you could choose to commit suicide or you can choose to try and just keep going. No matter what you choose, it's going to be your choice. But I always offer them a choice. Mm-hmm. And of course, you want them to choose life because we don't want to lose anybody to mental health, to mental illness. And especially at this time when people are getting younger and younger that are trying to commit suicide it's it's a very very hard thing to understand the balance of it you know obviously you want to save everybody but 
I wish we could save everybody in our community. And I'm not saying that we can't. I think that starts with better mental health resources and better ways of approaching it. When somebody has a choice versus you have no choice because coming from what I've been through, everybody told me, I, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. Well, what's, I mean, when we were kids, when somebody told me we couldn't do something, what did we do? You know, when you, when you give somebody a choice to live, it puts onus on themselves that, okay, if I wanna live, I need to take these steps. And um, there's this really good resource that I, that's out there. Um, if you ever listen to my podcast, there's an episode about it. Um, it's called Living Works. It's really great um, resource to how to talk with people that are suicidal. Um, I'll make sure that I I put that resource. I give that resource to you. It's an amazing resource. It's called Living Works, Absolutely. and it's like it's like twenty thirty bucks to do the class and teaches you how to talk to people that are suicidal. And um, a lot of it is about you know just like listening to people because at the end of the day somebody that that's hit that point where they've come up with a suicide plan and they want to execute it they want to be heard because they're not being listened to by anybody so that's really my thoughts about it i'm sorry if i went a little bit too long on that no, that's all fascinating stuff. How many times would you say people have reached out to you about that? Uh, I mean, you must get those questions quite frequently. Yeah. I mean, I had a pretty successful blog from 2017, 2021. And, you know, my philosophies kind of changed over time, but I don't think I could count on exactly how many people. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of people have reached out to me. And I've tried to just understand it from different points of view, you know, as somebody who's been through it and somebody who's been on the other side, you know, a lot of people have reached out to me over the years, um, me being a mental health advocate, you know, me being so transparent about my life, what I've been through. And so, yeah, plenty of people have reached out. Um, I wish more people would because I, you know, I leave my social media pages, everything on my websites and you know, people have reached out and used it, um, but there's just not enough resources. You know, I, I'm not knocking that the suicide hotline is not a resource because it is, it's a great resource, but they need people in there that have been through it as well as people who have not. I mean, I've talked to people who have worked the suicide hotline and they're mostly people who have never even thought about that. And so mm -hmm. how does someone help another person who is suicidal when they've never actually dealt with that? I'm not saying that they can't learn tools. Every, anybody can learn tools. But I think people come to me because I have been through it three times, the last time being the worst and luckily surviving it. You know, I don't know if it's hope. Um, I don't really try to guess on anything like that, but I've been very transparent about writing about my experiences. So I think that's why people reach out. Yeah, I, I can definitely see why people would think that you would be a good resource for that. And I think that's cool that you're like comfortable with people doing that, because I think a lot of times it, it would make um, 
another person feel very uncomfortable and maybe like something that would seem like too much to them. So more power to you. I think that's awesome. And so we've talked a lot about depression. I was wondering, what does mania look like for you? Yeah. Um, on one more note, I want to say on that. Sure. Um, it, if somebody is not comfortable, if you're really not comfortable, this is to anybody in the audience, if you're really not comfortable, do not try to help because that can make things worse. So I just kind of want to end that part of it on that. Um, with mania has always been definitely different. Um, everybody's different when it comes to bipolar and mania. For me, it's um, excessive spending, not being able to keep a job, um, reckless behavior. I mean, I remember one time uh, before my first diagnosis or before I was first diagnosed, um, doing reckless things like going driving down the highway um, like 120 miles an hour in my car at two o'clock in the morning because, you know, I didn't care. Um, you know, reckless behaviors with, you know, being around people and drinking and, you know, that's been my, my the biggest crutch during my life is um, dealing with alcoholism while I was bipolar mm-hmm. um, or while I am bipolar, excuse me. Um, but the biggest thing is like, I have really, and it's not so much anymore. Um, anger is a major component of my mania. Um, when I'm very manic, I will, I can, you can, you can't reason with me. And some people have, and it's, I've, I regretted it afterwards after I come down from mania, but my anger can get just, it just feels like a, like, on a scale of one to 10, it feels like a 20 sometimes. Yeah. I, I've gotten better at, at harnessing that anger into other channels like writing and things like that. But sometimes when I'm manic, I just, it's, it's hard to control exactly what's going on with me. And so, you know, I find that I can deal with ma- depression better with mania. Um, obviously, I've had, you know, elated, you know, the feeling of elation, like I can do you know, anything and everything. Um, I actually wrote a book literally in three months that I was manic, a 200,000 page manuscript in like three months that I was manic. Wow. I mean, I wasn't sleeping, obviously not sleeping is a major component of my mania. I don't sleep sometimes for days at a time. I think I went like maybe five or six days is the most I've ever gone through. They say six or seven days, you could probably die from that. I don't know. I never felt like I could I could die from not sleeping, but you know, that's not for me to say I'm not a medical expert. Um, yeah, those are really the main components of my own mania. And you know, everybody's different, everybody deals with different symptoms. Yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about with like manic rage. Uh when I'm manic, I, I feel they they call it irritability or agitation, I guess, but it feels like it goes so much further beyond that. Um just such a sense of like frustration. I call it being in like rampage mode. And especially when drugs and alcohol are in the mix, that just makes things so much worse too. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think your hospitalization experiences have helped you? Yes, in some ways I know. I mean, I don't want to, to discourage people from getting help ever. But the mental health system in itself 
is a mess. I mean, they're, you know, at the state to state level, even county to county level, at least what I've noticed, there's no correlation between each. And, you know, hospitals, when you go into a psychiatric ward, their main purpose is to get you stabilized and get you up. You know, they need to fill as many beds as they can. And you have a limited number of beds. Um, it hasn't really helped me in that sense, other than the fact that being in those experiences, especially the in the psychiatric wards and being on, uh, we call it in California 5150, where you, you lose your rights for 72 hours at the minimum. And they could be longer if the, if the doctors deem it necessary. And there wasn't enough resources. I basically spent the whole time sitting around reading books because, you know, there wasn't, there was some group therapy. There was, you meet with the doctor for five minutes. They give you the medication. And once they see you acting normal, they release you. And, you know, I've talked to other people that have experienced mental health in psychiatric wards in, you know, like say like Germany and sometimes you're in there for months at a time, but they actually have like different stages that you go through. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to dump on the American healthcare system, but it's a mess and mental health, especially, at least in my experiences, I don't know how it is now. I haven't been in, in a psychiatric ward for a long time, but I have talked to people that have been recently and it hasn't really changed and there needs to be changes. So in a sense, it's given me a better understanding of where I don't want to be. I don't want to be in psychiatric wards. They don't help, in my opinion, for me. That's my choice. Um, at the same time, you know, some people need to be in psychiatric wards because it's just when you get so bad that it's you're not in your right state of mind, it's perhaps the safest place for people. Yeah. Um, what do you, you were talking about, there needs to be changes. What do you think the number one or number two thing that should be changed about the hospital or hospital system for mental health care in the United States? What do you think that would be? They need more nurses and more doctors that are able. I mean, just in my experience, there was probably maybe 50 or 60 people each time that I was in. I, I could be wrong on the number. And there was maybe two nurses and one doctor for all of us. And that just seems like a really low number. I mean, how can you, I mean, they keep pretty good logs. Like I've looked at my medical records. They keep logs on you while you're inside the psychiatric worker, the nurses do to send to the doctors, you know, behaviors and things like that. But what I've learned from like my experiences, like I could cheat the, cheat the system so to speak and that's partly on me probably why my experiences were so bad because I wanted to get out there so bad that I was on my best behavior mm -hmm. but I should not have been released in okay. my opinion I should have stayed there longer than I did because obviously I was still I was still suicidal because I tried to take my life again three weeks after you know I was I, I got out so there was something in that you know I think there needs to be more resources, you know, if you, if you're not, if they don't know, like, like your situation, and then a lot of times they don't ask, they just kind of release you. And it's like, oh, you know, they give you all these outside resources. And a lot of the 
outpatient things, you know, seeing psychiatrists, therapists, um, not so much now because of, you know, people that are low income or stuff, they have better access, but those that are just kind of like in the borderline area to where they have insurance, but they still have really big co-pays and stuff. It's like, it's, it's bad because they don't want to seek help and seeking help is probably the first step when you're diagnosed. Um, you don't always have to seek help, but therapy, like I didn't get therapy probably to see it was about seven years after my diagnosis that I saw a therapist for the, for the first time because I couldn't afford it. It was only when Obamacare came out and I was able to actually get insurance. Um, when I was diagnosed, I went and I applied for, you know, my state insurance. Um, this is this is for before the pre-existing condition era. Basically, they said I had this condition before I went in, so they weren't going to help me. Hmm. That was basically it. I, I couldn't get insurance because, you know, I wasn't working at the time, but yet I was 22 years old and I couldn't get insurance simply because I had a pre-existing condition. Hmm. That's and terrible. That was basically, yeah. Um, I only got into my local behavior health. Um, that's what they call it here in Monterey County, the county I live in, because my mom was so adamant and she forced them to do it because I was, because, you know, by the time they interviewed me, they couldn't not let me in because I was that bad. I was suicidal. I didn't want, didn't care about life. Um, I had, I talk about, you know, to a lot about, 2018 to 2010 were my lost years where I just didn't really care about life. Um, didn't care about living, hardly left my house. Mm-hmm. I could probably count on probably the number of times I left my house on both my hands and 99% of those were productive visits. I just was not living life. Huh. And um, it was just lack of resources. And that's, that's what it comes down to. Like, like now there's more blogs and people and mental health advocates, and that's great, but the system hasn't changed enough, and there's just not enough resources, and it it does come to money at the end of the day, like there's just not enough money, or the money that's there is not allocated, you know, it, it varies from state to state, of course, um, but there's just not enough resources for people, and you're expected to pay for all these resources that are out there on your own, and it's like, it makes no sense. And some people try to do it on their own. And it's just a mess sometimes. Yeah, it's expensive to have a disability in this country. Yeah. It's crazy. And that's not that's not right. It's just it's it's unreal that we're a civilized country and you know, we don't have, you know, medical coverage for everyone. I mean that makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, especially in, in before pre-existing conditions, they could literally just say no mm-hmm. because, you know, you have to tell them, you know, you know, like when you get a diagnosis, if you don't have insurance before you get diagnosed, that diagnosis is your start date. So if you apply for, you know, insurance, ability, anything like that, after that, they consider a pre-existing condition makes no sense to me i mean how can you know what you which what nobody knows they have it before they're actually diagnosed Mm -hmm. i mean most people that i talk to you know there are some people that know that there's a problem 
you know, but they don't know what it is. So how are you supposed to know that you have a pre-existing condition? Yeah. Um, it's just a mess, in my opinion. But it is getting better. Um, hopefully we'll head in the right direction going forward. But what does that mean for those that are coming into this life that are in their teens and their, you know, you know, young adult 20s, you know, like I was when I was first diagnosed? I mean, what is it? What does it really come down to for them? I mean, are they going to have the same struggles I did? Are they going to, you know, have to fight for every inch of their mental health? And what that does is it just increases the stress level and anxiety that comes with it. I mean, because of what I was dealing with, maybe not getting help, I developed social anxiety and I developed, you know, panic disorder and, you know, insomnia I kind of always had since I was a kid. It just, all these things, some of these issues I didn't have until I was diagnosed. And so it becomes just a mess having to deal with all that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your writing. You're an author, you're a ghost writer. Let me ask you this first. What led to the creation of your memoir? Your memoir is called The Bipolar Writer, correct? Yeah, it's called The Bipolar Writer, a memoir. Um, I started my blog back in 2017. And before that, I had um, started a couple blogs that kind of fizzled out. And before I tried blogging, it was like I was trying to regurgitate what I saw on on the internet, you know, WebMD, whatever. You know, <laughs> all these are the senses of bipolar, what you should do. And I realized that wasn't what people wanted to hear. And so I just started sharing my story with people, just bits in articles and people just connected to it. And I just, it, it launched so quickly out of like, just, you know, I was, you know, it was just an idea that I had. Um, I was in school at the time and I was creating, I was supposed to create a website. So I, I was taking a class on that. And so I thought I just create this blog and share my stories and it just, all of a sudden it just kind of flipped the switch and it was probably about midway through 2018 maybe toward the end I was like I could turn this into a book you know just share my stories it's very non-linear it's very um just my experiences I thought you know by the time 2017 and 18 happened I had already been like you know 10 years 10 plus years into my diagnosis and um, I learned a lot over those years, you know, I had been through a lot. And I thought maybe just the idea of sharing my story would resonate with other people. And so I just took a chance and, you know, I, I actually got it, got it published by a publishing company and then some stuff happened with them. And I decided to just, um, once I got my rights back to my book, um, I was able to self-publish. So there were some issues with it, but, you know, it's, it was just um, something that I really felt like to continue writing everything I've done since then was because this story was in my mind, in my heart, and I had to get it out there in the world. You know, I don't care how many people have read it or not read it. It's more just getting that out in the world, knowing that I have something out there that's very transparent, shares my life. Now, again, I didn't share everything you know, I had to work through other things after 
I published that book, um, especially the stuff with my, with my, with my sexual abuse, the physical abuse that I endured as a child, you know, by somebody that, you know, was a trusted friend of the family. And so, you know, I hadn't dealt with that. So I didn't put it in that book. Uh, I'll probably write another memoir in the future that will kind of talk about that extensively because it's not something I've been able to talk to, talk to everyone about since maybe the last three years. So yeah. that's what where basically my writing came from. I started blogging and everybody kept telling me to write a book. And so I did. That's awesome. And um, I really identify with what you were saying about um, it feels good just to have something that transparent out there in the world, regardless of if people buy it or not. I mean, I'm sure people have bought many copies of your book so far. Um, I saw I've published a memoir as well about a year ago and I, you know, my purpose with it was like, if one person buys a copy of this, or if one person even just looks at the cover of this, then I'm going to consider that a success because it's a huge achievement just to put something that personal out there and put it on display for people who are curious about it. So I think that's amazing that you decided to do that. And I'm glad that you weren't discouraged by the process with the publishing company and that you decided just to go ahead and do it yourself. I mean, that's the American way right there, right? Yeah, it really is. And I had, you know, my writing experience has, you know, I started writing memoirs for other people, ghostwriting since about 2012. So up to that point, I had written quite a few books. So I knew the process of what, you know, what it did and I, obviously I just I was close to finishing by the time I started writing it I think I just finished uh, my bachelor's degree um, I went I went back to school um, in my late 20s so you know obviously I'm, I'm 36 now um, I have a bachelor's degree I have a master's I'm working on my second master's degree right now um, and MFA so basically I want to be able to teach writing to other people um, but you know it was just Writing was my creative outlet that made sense. And so I just kept pursuing it. And that's really what I do for a living. And, you know, the, the memoir was the same thing. You know, people have, have, read, have read my memoir. You know, they talk to me and they're like, thank you for writing that. You know, it encourages me to maybe one day do it on my own. Um, I've encouraged a, a few writers that have now written memoirs. Um, because I decided to write it and that's enough for me mm -hmm. I mean it's not a this you know obviously my fictional work I want to make money on that's the plan it's always a plan but you know my non-fiction work when it comes to my mental mental health advocacy work and writing about my life it's about sharing you know I've given away probably 200 copies of my book to people because yeah. they couldn't they just they come to me and they're like I can't afford your book but I really want to read it I said, just send me your, 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 your address and I'll just give you the book. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not about making a bunch of money off this book. It's about sharing it with people. You know, I've had people read my book and then, you know, like in like bigger cities, not so much here, but like bigger cities, you know, they'll have like um, book drop-offs and people have sent me pictures of them dropping off my book because they want to share it with the world. I'm like, that's beautiful. That's it really amazing. It's a beautiful thing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, what kind of fiction do you write? Just out of curiosity, do you have a type of subject that you usually uh, drift toward? Yeah, this is very interesting. I, I 
I've always been drawn to speculative fiction. So um, dystopian and fantasy fiction, um, kind of with the Gothic themes, dark romanticism, have always been what I've been drawn to as a writer. And uh, so I'm a speculative writer. Uh, basically, that's just, that could be anything from dystopian, fantasy, sci-fi, um, high fantasy, I mean, you name it. You know, speculative fiction is pretty broad. Uh, my focus has always been mixing fantasy elements with dystopian societies. Hmm. And that's always been something that I read. Um, obviously, I read a lot of books. It's I'm a, a big reader. I've been reading since I was probably three years old on my own. So I read everything I can get my hands on, and I'll continue to do that probably for the rest of my life. It kind of goes hand in hand, being a writer and a reader. Uh, but when in the fiction realm, I specifically focus on speculative fiction. That's awesome. How many books have you written? Um, published. Um, I've only published one fiction um, novel so far. It's a novella, actually. Okay. Um, it's actually not in the genre that I'm used to writing. Um, it's called Angel on the War. It's on my author website. It's a novella about it's a it's a fictional tale, but it's like it mixes elements of what I experienced in the psychiatric ward, while still telling a story about you know these two people that are in a psychiatric world, and they come from different backgrounds, and you know I don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> it's a psychological thriller basically, set in a psychiatric ward, and um, mm. it's kind of based on somebody I met that told me part of the story, um, but then of course obviously as a writer I took my own liberties. Um, it kind of turned into something that you know even though I write as James Edgar Sky the main character's name is James and I never changed it because it just didn't make sense to me you know because part of my life is into that story like the main character what I went through in the beginning was basically what I was going through at that time so it just made sense to write kind of from my perspective um as of right now I'm um I'm looking for agents for my, I have this big, you know, speculative fiction novel. It's called Rise of the Nephilim. Um, that one's completed. Um, I'm currently writing, a. that one's going to be a, a six book series. Um, it's written in third person omniscient. So basically uh, I'm the, I'm the narrator of the story and it's written in uh, from like about 12 to 14 characters, um, similar to what uh, George R. R. Martin does his Game of Thrones series. And then I'm writing a uh, third-person limited speculative dystopian novel, kind of another, again, a, a mix of fantasy and dystopian. Um, that's kind of uh, a single point of view from a single point of view character. Um, so right now, those are my two main books. Um, when it comes to ghostwriting, like I can't say the names of most of Sure. Of the of the work because you know the whole essence of ghostwriting is um, I write the books and the, the author or the the person who came up with the idea takes the credit. But I've written probably about two books from 2012 to now, almost every year, with the exception of last year and this year. I've only written one each. Um, so I do have a lot of books that I've written, a lot of experience with publishing and things like that. Very cool. Are there any famous uh, authors with mental illness who inspire you or other famous individuals with mental illness who inspire you? Yeah, um, one of the one of my greatest influencers is um, Ernest Hemingway. Okay. Um, 
if, those of you in the audience that don't know, you know, he had a, he was an amazing writer, but he also had, you know, he had, he dealt with alcoholism. Um, he ended up um, killing himself. And, uh, but his work is very influential uh, in just, he's one of the great writers that I like. Um, Edgar Allan Poe is probably the most influential writer. Um, you know, Edgar, James Edgar Skye, you know, Edgar is an ode to Edgar Allan Poe. My, I just read his stuff like all the time. His, his poem, The Raven, I read it probably three or four times throughout my year, sometimes more. Wow. Um, I just love reading that, but I read pretty much all his work um, throughout my life. Um, trying to think of other authors. There's a, lot, there's a few authors that I've, that I've read that do have a mental illness background. And um, I like reading people that have, you know, those type of backgrounds because their their work is sometimes a little bit darker, but there's so much more meaning behind it. And um, in my own writing, no matter what I write, some part of my mental illness or what I know and what I've been through comes out in my writing, no matter if it's fiction, especially in my fiction work. It just seems to come out and, you know, that's who I am, you know, or not who I am, but being bipolar is something I've lived through. I've had successes, I've had lots of setbacks and yet I'm still here. So it, it influences my writing a lot, but those two authors are my mega, like, you know, they had a lot, each author had, you know, um, there's a lot of speculation behind Edgar Allan Poe's death, you know, whether he, he killed himself or not. You know, he had a lot of problems with mental health. So did uh, Hemingway, um, but their work speaks to me. I can see their own struggles through their work, and you know other authors. I can't remember too many off the top of my head, um, you know. But there are a lot of authors out there that are have a mental health background that they just use it in their work, and it's just amazing to see. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned alcoholism a couple of times. Um, are you sober these days or do you still use anything, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, I was sober from 2015 to um, the end of 2019. I had a, a very tragic thing happen in my life. Um, I lost my mom in December uh-huh. of 2019 to, to, she had a stroke and um it was kind of sudden. We, I never got to say goodbye. And um, before that, you know, she encouraged me to get sober. And I did. I sobered for five years. And um, 2020 was a hard year for me overall. Yeah. And I, tur- I turned back to, to drinking alcohol all the time. And um, I'm not proud of it, you know, obviously. Um, hey, man, it, had, it happens, dude. It yeah. happens. I'm in recovery, too. And, you know, a lapse or a relapse is nothing to be ashamed of. It, it's yeah. just part of the recovery process. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I had some great people in my life come into my life last year. And they encouraged me, you know, not to just stop, but to start cutting down. And by the by the time New Year's rolled around, I was in a good place in my life again. Um, I had read a lot of books on grief and I'd started learning how to grieve my mom the right way. Um, there's this book by Shelby Forsythia, um, Permission to Grieve, that really was influential in changing the way that I grieved 
during my during a during last year and even this year, because um, they say like the first two years are like the hardest years of after you lose somebody significant. Um, and you know, I just decided in New Year's Eve that January first I was gonna stop drinking, and I've been I've been clean ever since. I haven't touched a drop since January first of this year. Congratulations, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's a really big accomplishment for sure. So. Yeah. I commend you for that. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? I mean, we've covered a really wide range of things um, over the last hour or so, but anything else that you feel like we haven't touched on that you'd like to discuss before we uh, kind of conclude the episode? Yeah, you know, there. I always like to tell people that there's so much hope in in this life no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad it is right now, the pain, it's real. Don't ever let people tell you it's not, that something that's going on in your mind is not real because it is. It absolutely is a real illness, mental illness in general, anything that has to do with the mind, any illness that you have right now. Don't let people be negative or, put, or bring negative into your life, you know, let people in your life that's going that are going to be positive, that are going to help you get through things, you know. But try not to do it alone. Go out there and meet people. It's something that I'm learning just recently within the last year to reach out to people. Besides being a, a podcaster and mental mental health advocate, you know, you have to be you have to work on yourself too. And while the natural way that people want to do it is in silence. That does not help. Find a creative outlet, blogging, podcasting, even if it's just writing for yourself in a diary. Do something that's 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 creative because creativity is a great con conducive thing, you know, for mental health, for better mental health. Whether it's learning to play the guitar, playing an instrument, writing music, writing poetry. I mean, you can name a million things you can create, a painting. It doesn't really matter. Find that creative outlet that works for you and go after it because you're going to find that creativity kind of offsets, you know, the negativity that can come with having a mental illness. And just put people around you. And sure, there's going to be people in your life that are going to be negative. Learn from them. Every person that comes into your life good or bad is, is a teacher. It's something I learned from a life coach of mine, you know. Um, also, always look for other resources besides what doctors, psychiatrists, and therapists are telling you. Yes, CBT is good. Therapy is good. But there are other things like life coaching. There's some great life coaches out there. Um, there's different resources out there. Don't be limiting yourself to just what the so quote-unquote experts are telling you because that's not the whole part of the equation there's so many aspects of having a mental illness well said that's amazing um any projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to plug any social media that people can find or reach out to you at if they'd like uh yeah my author site is a pretty simple one it's jamesedgarsky.me that's my main author site. It's going to have a blog again eventually in the coming weeks or months. 
Um, I'm working on this really great project is called um, The Many Voices and Faces of Mental Illness. And it's kind of like my Humans of New York type of deal. Um, I'm gonna be doing a, a documentary eventually. Um, right now I'm just, uh, it's basically like um, I interview um, an individual that wants to be a part of it extensively. Like I do a lot of interviews for, um, for my ghostwriting work. So I have a lot of experience interviewing people. Um, the original idea was supposed to be in 2020, travel around the United States, getting people's stories. Obviously the pandemic limited that. And so I've adjusted it to where I'm gonna do a lot of the, the initial work on Zoom. And then I'm going to be, you know, eventually I have a, I have a videographer that's gonna be traveling with me. Uh, I'm gonna do a, document, a couple of documentaries. It's gonna turn into a couple of books. Um, so yeah, that's the main thing I really wanna plug is if you're interested, um, reach out to me on my website. Again, it's uh, www.jamesedgarsky.me. And um, just reach out to me if you're interested. And um, I'd love to hear as many stories as possible. That's really what I love about podcasting and writing and everything I've done in the mental health advocacy world is that I'm able to share stories. So that's the goal. That's awesome. I hope that people in our audience do reach out to you about that because you've spoken to me about that project before. And I think it just sounds like the coolest thing. So we'll definitely put all the details about that in the episode description too. So people can find your website, find your social media and um, check it out. So that's amazing. And James, I just wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today. This has been a great interview and I think people will really get a lot out of it. I appreciate you allowing me to come on your show. I really enjoyed having that conversation with James. I think that it touches on so many different aspects of mental illness and is really relatable to a wide range of people so I hope you got something out of it. I also just wanted to briefly thank everyone who has supported this show so far. The reception that we've gotten has just been incredible, and it's very humbling. If you've been enjoying the show, be sure to tell your friends about it so we can keep increasing our following and getting the word out about mental health. We'll be back again next week with more content for you, so until then, just hold tight, and join us for the next conversation. My name's Hunter Keegan. Thank you again so, so, so much for listening. Be safe. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.